right, this week's portion is Lech Lecha, concerning the story of Abraham's life. And what we see here is that Abraham was called out from his native country, from the life he was living before into the new life that God has prepared for him. Now, seeing how every single one of us here has also been called out, Abraham's story is something that we should stop and take a look at. Because he being the father of the faith, his life is really what set the path or the foundation for us to follow. And what we are going to see in here is what we will expect and where are we going. So to connect last week's Parsha with this week's Parsha, we're going to look at Noah. And Noah was also called out from his generation. He was taken into a covered house, which was the ark, into a wilderness. Now similarly, we see that Noah was called out from his family. And Abraham was taken under covering of the wings of Hashem, which we will be discussing here in a second, into a wilderness. So now we see a pattern here because the children of Israel, when they went out from Egypt, they were also called out under God's covering, which was the cloud, into a wilderness. Also Yeshua, before he began his ministry, he was called out into a wilderness for 40 days when he was fasting. So why a wilderness? Well, when you're dwelling in the city and you're getting caught up in the distractions of life, you can't really hear God's voice. There's so much confusion going on that you can't really hear that small, still voice that speaks to us. It's kind of like the story that Yeshua had with uh, Mary and Martha. Martha was running around real busy. It said she was distracted with many things. But Mary was sitting there, not paying attention to what was going on in the world, but was sitting at the feet of the Master, listening to what he had to say. So that's what the purpose of the wilderness is. Now, it's not always a literal wilderness. The wilderness can be kind of like a metaphor for our lives here in this world today. And so, the wilderness is just a place we're traveling through. Just like our life here is only temporary. It's a place we're traveling through. So where are we going? After you are called out into the wilderness, we journey toward the promised land. Well, what is the promised land? Let's go to the Genesis 15:7, which is in this four portion. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now this land was promised to Abraham, which is why it's called the promised land. And that is the, the, uh, the destination that we all have. That was the destination of Abraham. It was the destination of the children of Israel. It's the destination for us. Now most people in modern religion might call this heaven, but biblically speaking, it's the land of Israel. The land promised to Abraham. And that is where his people receive his rest. So, <clears throat> yeah. deathly afraid of snakes, Joel always had to wear blinders while hiking. <laughs> now he's hiking through the wilderness. It can be a scary place. Now you can either stay home and just say, I don't care. Or you're going to put on those blinders and you're going to go out there and go for it. Just like Abraham, when he left uh, Ur, when he left Mesopotamia, he didn't look back. And he didn't look to his left and to his right at the physical land that was around him. What he was doing is he was looking forward for the city whose designer and builder was God. So he had on spiritual blinders. He didn't care what was going left and right because he knew that wasn't his home. His home was in the world to come. So this is what we also need to do. Now, Josephus, he was a, uh, a historian from the first century. And he was very thorough and... Uh, everything he did, and he talked about the world that Abraham lived in, about the desert. This is what he had to say. For it requires much time to pass through Mesopotamia, in which it is tedious traveling. 
both in the winter for the depth of the clay, which is mud, and in summer for the want of water. And besides this, for the robberies there committed, which are not avoided by travelers, but by caution beforehand. Now, it says that it's tedious for traveling. Now, Abraham was a sojourner, which means his life was traveling. That's all he did. So, it wasn't easy. And not to mention the robberies. His wife was stolen twice. Right. He was his nephew. I mean, I think it was rough. Now, um, Abraham's story right here is a lesson for us that once you say yes to the Messiah, it's not just smooth selling from there. You know, it's like you're not going to wake up every morning to a foot rub and a cup of coffee. It, it, can be, it can be pretty hairy sometimes. You know, as we know, Abraham had it rough. The sages say that Abraham had to go through ten trials in his life. And the purpose of that was to build up his faith, to make him stronger. And also to set up an example for the rest of the world, to us, what a faithful life looks like. But <clears throat> Hashem has us covered. No matter what happens, he is there for us. And uh, Abraham, he was human just like the rest of us. And humans grow weary. They get tired. They get sleepy. They get hungry and cranky. Abraham was no different. He was human just like the rest of us. And uh, there were points when he probably was getting pretty down in the dumps. But Hashem was always there to encourage him. In Genesis 51 or 15.1 it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. This promise is for everyone who walks in the footsteps of Abraham. This promise is for us. So, if you are ever feeling weak, if you're ever feeling weary, like maybe you just can't do it, just remember Abraham. Remember what Hashem said to him. He says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. That was the promise to him. And through the Messiah, that promise is now part of us. So, the story of Abraham. So, Abraham was the first Hebrew. So, now that's pretty interesting. We can sit there and study it, you know, we're pretty good at it. We can explain it to people, show off how smart we are. But what's the point? The point is that we want to become Hebrews. So how do we become Hebrews like Abraham? Part two. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Also, cool intellectual knowledge, but what's the point? How do we become part of that blessing? And then the last point. Abraham was the man of faith. So how do we become faithful like Abraham? So the Torah portion, Lech Lecha, it's the word, the root word, Halak. Now, this word means to come, to go, to walk. And what's interesting here is it says halak, halak, lek, lekha. It says the word twice. He could have said it once, but why twice? Well, in Hebrew, when you say something twice, it just really adds emphasis. Like in the tabernacle, you have the holy place, kadosh. But then you had the holy of holies, kadosh, kadosh, which is real serious. So... When he says halak, halak, he just doesn't mean, all right, let's go. He means go. And <laughs> he means it. So, it means to go, to walk, to come. But it also, figuratively speaking, it is a manner of life. So, it's a Hebrew idiom. If you're ever speaking to a Jewish guy and he says, how is your halakha? What he's saying is, how is your life? How is your walk? So, Abraham's walk, Abraham's way of life is an example that we need to follow. So now, lek lekha, halak, is two words in the Hebrew. It's the lamed and the kapsufit. 
The Lamed represents a rod, authority, a teaching, or to go towards or to go forward. <clears throat> or the Lamed means that. And the Kasufit means a wing or to cover. So if you put this word together, it means the teaching or authority that leads us toward the wing that covers us. Okay. Now, Messiah says that he wished to gather us just how a hen would gather her brood under her wings. So if we want to come under the wings, under the protection of the master, what we need to do is we need to walk toward him. Because, remember, he's our shield, and the shield covers us. So, it's not just an option. We are commanded to walk to halakha. In Romans 4.12, it says, And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but to also walk halakha in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. So, Apostle Paul here is commanding us to have the same halakha as the faith of Abraham. But then we also see in 1 John 2, 6, referring to the Messiah, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's saying that we need to have the same halakha that the Messiah had. Amen. So now we're seeing something here. We're supposed to have the same halakha as Abraham and the same halakha as the Messiah. Now we can't serve two masters, can we? So in the same way, we cannot have two manners of life. You can't wake up and be two people. And to make things worse, it says in Psalms 119.1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So not only are we supposed to have the same halaha as Abraham and the Messiah, now we're supposed to have the halaha of Hashem. Now you can't serve two masters, you definitely can't serve three. So the only answer here is that it is the same. The halaha of Abraham, of the Messiah, of the Lord, are the same. Now, you can't just do whatever you want because there are bad walks. There's an unrighteous halaha. As we see in Jude 1.11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So woe to them whose halaha is after the way of Cain. Also King Jehoram in 2 Kings 8.18. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughters of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So his halaha was after Ahab, which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now there are dozens and dozens of examples of people walking in the way of someone else. And every single time it's bad, unless they are walking in the way of the Lord. So now, a walk can be unrighteous, but according to scripture, a walk must be righteous. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the father and mother of John the Baptist in Luke 1 16. And they were both righteous before before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Also in Genesis 6 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So you can be have a righteous walk or you can have an unrighteous walk. Sorry. And you can't choose a third walk. There's only good and there's only bad. Bad can be anything you want it to be. But good, as a standard. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, but leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So a way is a path. And a path is something you walk on. 
a halakha. So, the gate is wide and the halakha is easy that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and the halakha is hard that leads to life. Abraham's life was hard, wasn't it? Yeah. His walk was very narrow. So if we want to find this narrow gate and we want to take the hard path that leads to life, well, we need to follow the path Abraham walked. So, Abraham was the first Hebrew. We're going to see what this means. Now, in Genesis 14, 13, we find this verse, the reference to this, in 14, 13. And then one who had escaped and came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Amir, these were allies of Abraham. So he was the first Hebrew. So, according to uh, Chumash, he was, just wasn't a Hebrew for no reason. There was a reason that he was a Hebrew. Abraham was called an Ivri, which is the Hebrew word for Hebrew, from the word Ivri, the other side. Literally, this means that he came to Canaan from the other side of the Euphrates. But the sages interpret the title in a deeper sense, too. He was on one side of a moral and spiritual divide, and the rest of the world was on the other. Abraham was on this side, the world was on this side. <coughs> That's what it means to be a Hebrew. Now, this should be clicking a little story about Abraham in the New Testament. We all know about Lazarus and the rich man, right? Yep, the theme. Yes. The rich man was living life real good. And then outside his gate was a poor man named Lazarus who had sores on him and was going hungry, and he just wanted to eat the crumbs off his table. And he was so poor, he was really kind of helpless. The dogs would lick his sores. Well, as is the way of all men, they both died. And Lazarus went into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man went somewhere else. And this is what the rich man had to say in Luke 16:24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So, Abraham was on one side of a great spiritual divide. This is the chasm we see here. Now, the word Hebrew can also be translated as to cross over. So... A Hebrew is someone who has crossed over from the side the rich man was on, onto the side of Abraham. That's the point of being a Hebrew. If somebody is saying, no, I'm not a Hebrew, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, what they're saying to do, I want to stay on the side of the rich man. Abraham's on the other side, the side of the Messiah. So if you want to go on that same side, you have to be a Hebrew. You have to cross over, just like Abraham. So Abraham's walk will show us how to become Hebrews. Now the first step to becoming a Hebrew is in Genesis 12, 1. And Hashem said to Abram, Go yourself out of your land, from your relatives, and from your father's house, to a land I show you. So he was called out from his father's house. The question is why? Now we know Abraham was a righteous man, so he wouldn't do anything unrighteous. So according to righteousness, in Exodus 20, 12, or 20, yeah, 20, 12, it says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Mm -hmm. So Hashem was not using this as an excuse to be unrighteous or to get back at someone in his family or to be rude on his way out and hate the place while he's leaving. <laughs> oh, 
Abraham was doing it for a reason. And anyways, his father, Terah, was already dead at this point. So he wasn't leaving his father. He was leaving his father's house. So let's see. What is the father's house in the Hebrew? Now, house is the Bayit Yotav. And the Bayit is a household, which is also a family. And the Yod is a hand, deeds or works, and the Tav is a sign. So when you stick this word together into the word Bayit, which means house, you get the sign of the family's deeds or works. So Abraham was being called out from the deeds, from the works yes. of his father's house. So now, what were the deeds and the works of Terah's household, the father of Abraham? In Joshua 24, 23, or 24, 2-3, we read, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yonhevave, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from behind, from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So, the works of Terah, of that household, was idol worship, worshiping other gods. And Abraham had to be called away from that. That's step one of being a Hebrew. Oh yeah. So, biblically speaking, a house is known for the family inside, not the building itself. A family is held by a creed of beliefs, their faith. Abraham was called out from the faith of his family to the faith of the one true God. Now, it's not just, just for Abraham. If we want to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, well, the example lies for us as well. In Jeremiah 16, 19, O Adonai, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the nation shall come to you from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and there is no profit in them. Now, there's only one true God, so any other God would necessarily be a lie. And also idols. Idols are nothing. They're just a big lump of wood or clay or stone or metal or whatever. So if anybody bows and worships them, they're bowing and worshiping to a lie. So Terah had inherited lies from his father. And those lies were going to be passed on to Abraham, but he refused. And he was called out, and he crossed over to the of the Messiah. Also in Galatians 1.13, we have Apostle Paul. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. So, we see Apostle Paul had to go through an experience to get where he was. But the same as Abraham, he was called out from his former life and the traditions of his fathers. So, even though Apostle Paul was the literal biological offspring of Abraham, he was also a Hebrew, following in the footsteps of Abraham. So step two of becoming a Hebrew, also in Genesis 12.1. And Hashem said to Abraham, go yourself out of your land from your relatives. So we see that he had to leave his father's house, or the faith of his father's house. Why does he have to leave the relative? So let's look in the Hebrew. It is the Hebrew word moledeth, and it means a lineage or a native country. So like, let's say you were born and raised in Russia, your lineage would be Russian. Or in Japan, you need to be Japanese. Anywhere. 
Wherever you are born, that is your lineage. Abraham was called out from that. Abraham was called out of his lineage and native status, and he became a new citizen. Hallelujah. Now, this is not the only place we see it, because this is a biblical concept that we see throughout the entirety of Scripture. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the chief cornerstone. Romans 2.29 But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Old Testament. Esther 8.17 And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his order came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And then also, the grandmother of King David, who was an ancestor of Messiah and Yeshua, Ruth 1.16. And Ruth said, do not beg me to leave you, to return from following after you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. So now the story of Ruth is something very interesting because scripture says that no, no, no Moabite will become a member of God's nation for, what is it, ten generations? So how is it that Ruth, a Moabite, became the great-grandmother or the grandmother of King David? Well, it's because she was no longer a Moabite. She let go of her native status. She let go of her father's faith. And she came into the faith that God had given to their forefathers. So we see, your people shall be my people. So in a sense, she became a Jew. Because a Jew is one who is inward, not out in the flesh. And when you become a Jew inward, you are now a fellow citizen. Messiah is your chief cornerstone in that city. So, Abraham left the customs and traditions of his family. Hallelujah. Abraham also left his former identity and citizenship on the other side of the Euphrates. So, <clears throat> I think we're starting to get an idea of what a Hebrew is. But to really nail this down so that we really know what we're talking about here, we're going to use some definitions that are a little bit more familiar to us in you know, our modern lingo. So Abraham became a new man. He was given a new nature, and a new heart, and a new spirit. So once all this happens, you are born again. Now does becoming a Hebrew make more sense? All right, now let's look at this. Old nature, new man. Ephesians 4.22. Regarding your former way of life. You were taught to strip off your old nature, which is being ruined by its deceptive desires, yep. to be renewed in your mental attitude, and to clothe yourselves with the new nature, which was created according to God's image and righteousness and true holiness. Oh, yeah. Also Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, having put off the old man with his deeds, and having put on the new, having been renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who, was, who created him. So... What we learned with the Hebrew, when you become a Hebrew, you have to leave everything behind. You have to put off the old man and the deeds with him. And then you have to put on the new. Because remember, you just can't sit there and say, Okay, I'm a new person. 
and then you go off and do everything like you did before. Yeah. Because you're not new. At that point, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. So, born again. Yeshua said this to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Right. Yeshua answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom Alleluia. of God. <laughs> Abraham saw the kingdom of God. Because he was born again. Yes. So, it goes a little bit deeper than that. Let's go to John 3, 5. And Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so is Abraham born of water and spirit? All right, now the New Covenant. How is this related? Now, we're all familiar with Jeremiah 31, 31. That's the prophecy of the New Covenant. And it's in it, he says, that I will take my laws and I'll put them in your minds and write them on your hearts. Well, in Ezekiel 36, 24, it kind of takes that and expounds a little bit and see, so you can really get an idea what this is going to look like when it happens. So let's read it. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Okay, now obviously, to be part of the new covenant, you need to be born again. And you need to be born of water and spirit to be born again. So, you'll sprinkle clean water on you. You're born of water. And you'll put a spirit within you. Spirit. So this is part of being born again. But what about Abraham? Let's read this again with Abraham in mind. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. Abraham. He was taken from his own country. He was taken from the nations and brought into his own land. Abraham. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. Abraham crossed the Euphrates. Yes. <laughs> when the wow. children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, wow. Apostle Paul equated that with a baptism. baptism. <laughs> so when Abraham crossed the Euphrates, it was a baptism. He was sprinkled with water. And you shall be clean from your uncleannesses, and from your idols I will cleanse you. Boy, oh boy. Abraham's household worshipped idols. They sold idols. That was their business. And obviously because they were doing that, they were unclean. So Abraham was clean from his uncleannesses, and from the idols he cleansed him. This is Abraham. And I will give you a new heart and new spirit. Abraham was a Hebrew. So yes. And I'll, put, <clears throat> and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Okay. He will cause you to dwell in the land that he gave to your fathers. Which father did he give the land to? Abraham. Abraham. The new covenant's all about Abraham. All right. So the first Hebrew, born again, new citizenship. It's all about the same thing. So why should a Hebrew leave his father's house in former land? Why can't he just stay there? Well, in Revelation 18.4, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues. Numbers 16.25 And then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, the elders of Israel. <clears throat> the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So, now this really goes without saying. Let's look at Lot in this, this week's portion. Lot was dwelling in a very wicked city. 
and that city was about to destroy him. When the angels came to him and said, get out, what if Lot said, tell you it's been a hard day at work, I need a nap, I'll go tomorrow. What would have happened? It, it's that simple. <laughs> and also, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be, de be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Boy, oh boy. People like to say, well, Yeshua sat and ate, and ate with sinners. No, he was sitting with repentant sinners. Amen. He wasn't sitting there partaking in their nonsense. <laughs> he was calling people out. So if you're going to eat with sinners, make sure you're eating with sinners who are repenting and you're calling them out. Amen. So now you can't always just get up and leave. You know, It's a spiritual thing because the first generation of Israel, when they got up and left Egypt, the first generation took Egypt with them. They were out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, and Egypt was still in their hearts. Yeah. So remember, this is a spiritual thing. you got to let go of it in your heart. So, <clears throat> when you are called out and are given a new nature, do not take your old nature along for the ride. <laughs> it, it may have fun, but you won't. <laughs> so, Rachel, Jacob's wife, kept her father's idols. We all know the story. She died. The first generation in the wilderness kept the traditions of Egypt. They died. <laughs> Are we holding on to our old traditions that contradict the teaching of the Messiah? When we come into the walk of the Messiah, are we just professing his name and still walking in the ways of the nations? That is a real question. And this can be anything. It can be how we treat our brothers and sisters. How do we come before God? How do we minister the word of God to people who are coming into the covenant? I mean, this just... A halaha, it's a manner of life. It's every piece of your life from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. We need to examine every piece of our lives and see if it comes into agreement with the Messiah. Because remember, we are commanded to walk as he walked, not walk at how we please. Good word. Now, this was one of the difficult trials that Abraham had to endure. Because it's not easy. And Abraham had a very big heart, according to the sages. This is probably more hard for him than it was for most people because he loved his family. So officially a Hebrew. Now what? Abraham left his old self behind and is now ready to serve a new master, as are we. Now this new master has a pretty good retirement package. <laughs> and it's all wrapped up in what is called the promise. But there is one problem. We need to cross the wilderness to get to it. Amen. <laughs> now we will get there. You just got to follow Abraham. So now we read about this promise again. Genesis 12, 1. And Hashem said to Abraham, Go yourself out of your land from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I show you, and I shall make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I shall bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you and in you all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this right here is the promise. And now that I've pointed this out, trust me, when you're reading through the Bible now, you're going to be seeing that word everywhere. Because the promise is a pretty big deal. Now, the sages say that the promise consists of these seven blessings. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is pretty great. I mean, if anybody received that promise, I mean, you'd be jumping for 
joy. I mean, you wouldn't hesitate to go across that Euphrates. <coughs> but there's one problem. Abraham has no children. So really none of this can come to pass because he has no child. But never fear. There's an answer. According to the shadows of Messiah, God offered Abraham the seven promises of promises of Genesis 12, 1-3. We just read those. If he would go forth from his land and travel to Canaan. Pinhas, then Yair said, with seven blessings did the Holy One, blessed be he, bless Abraham. And these are they. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and so on. Once Abraham arrived in Canaan, the Lord gave to him an eighth promise. Saying, to your descendants I will give this land. You read that in Genesis 12, 7, which is also in this Torah portion. The eighth promise encompasses all the previous seven, and the previous seven hang upon the eighth promise. The eighth promise guaranteed the posterity to the childless Abraham. So blessings, or yes, blessings one through seven of the promise all hang on the eighth promise. So now since each one of these is an all-day teaching by itself, we're just going to pick one, which is number seven, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. No matter which one of these pick, it's going to lead us into the eighth one, because they all hang on it. So we're going to look at that one, and then it'll take us to the eighth one, where, he'll, where he's promised him offspring. So, again here, and in you, all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. That is blessing number seven. And it means, in Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, to saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's what the seventh blessing is. Everybody's involved in that one, right? But look at this, the gospel. Who told you that that just happened in the first century? I mean, that back in Abraham, he's even before Moses. That's been around for a while. So, if you have faith, you're part of the gospel, and you're an offspring of Abraham, well, then you're going to be blessed along with Abraham. So, Gentiles are blessed by being grafted into the covenants and promises given to Abraham. The covenant that God made with Abraham was not dependent upon genealogy status. Nope. This is the gospel spoken of in the New Testament. You hear this a lot in the New Testament about the gospel. But it's all translation. It's all over in the Old Testament as well. Salvation to all who would receive it and walk in it. Alaha. The gospel was given to Abraham to share with the whole world. So, it was a promise before. Those seven blessings plus one were just a promise. But Hashem is about ready to upgrade it to a covenant. So what's the difference between a promise and a covenant? Let's say I want my house painted, so somebody says, if you give me a wad of cash, I'll paint your house. Well, you just promised me. So I give him a wad of cash, he splits town, what am I going to do? Nothing. So he just, here's a promise, so he's gone, nobody cares. But now, let's say we're going to make a covenant. I want my house painted. And this guy says, I'll paint your house for a wad of cash, so he just made that promise. So we're going to take his promise, we're going to write it on a piece of paper, we're going to take it to the courthouse. We're going to sign it. We're going to have witnesses and have a judge stamp it and file it away in a lockbox. It is now legally binding. So now when I give him that wad of cash and he doesn't take my house, oh boy, heaven help him. So, a covenant is accountability. A covenant means it's going to happen. So let's see this covenant in Genesis 17.1. 
When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and I may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So we see right here, he's taking the promise and making it into a covenant. Now, a covenant has two parties, and they both are going to do something. God is going to make Abraham a great nation and give him all these blessings. But Abraham is going to walk before him and be blameless. <coughs> and it goes on. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And the king shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout your generations. Now this should sound pretty familiar to those of you, those of you who have read Deuteronomy, because in there, when Moses reaffirms the covenant, he says, not only do I make this covenant with you here today, but with those of you not here today. Right. Same thing with Abraham, with his offspring. Now, the offspring are going to inherit the land. Everlasting covenant. So, it is an everlasting covenant, which means it's going to last forever. The land will be an everlasting possession. Same thing. The covenant was made with Abraham and his offspring. But wait a minute. Where are the Gentiles? It said offspring. I didn't see Gentiles in there. So, Galatians 3, 16. This is how the Gentiles get in there. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Messiah. So, the offspring promised to Abraham was indeed Isaac. But ultimately, it was the Messiah. And this is where we come in. Galatians 3, 29. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to the promise. Bless you, Father. So, this covenant made with Abraham is the same covenant he has made with you. So, you are now Abraham's offspring. You believe in the Messiah. Well, you believe in the promise given to Abraham. So, look at this. Abraham had faith that Hashem would provide him an offspring. That offspring was Messiah. Abraham believed in his offspring, who is the Messiah. So, Abraham believed in the Messiah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> If we are Messiahs, then we have the same faith, because if we believe in the Messiah, who is Abraham's offspring, we believe in Abraham's offspring, which means we believe in the same thing. Us and Abraham all believed in the Messiah. I mean, it's just logic. So, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. Faith in the Messiah. Faith in the Messiah. Galatians 3, 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Beautiful. But remember, this is not a New Testament concept. This is a biblical concept. And even the sages agree with this. In Mishnah Bukharim 1.4, on their discussion of Deuteronomy 26.5. Now, in here, Hashem has commanded in Deuteronomy 26.5 that when you have entered this promised land that he has sworn to your fathers, that you are supposed to take the first fruits of the land and take it to him as an offering to say, thank you for bringing me here. So when you get there and you give the blessing... You have a list of things that you're supposed to say. One of those things was, our father was a wandering Armenian. Now, 
there was some debate way, way, way back when that if somebody was a convert to the faith and not literally a biological offspring to Abraham, how can they say our fathers? Well, this is the conclusion that the sages came up with all this time ago. The halaha, we all know that word, right? The halaha is that a convert brings and does recite our fathers, since Abraham is considered the father of all converts. Hallelujah. This is not a modern concept. This is a biblical concept. And the first century writers is not the first ones to figure it out. They've been around forever, everlasting. So, the Lord's covenant was not only with Abraham, but also with his offspring. If you are Messiah's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are of the faith, then you are Abraham's offspring. Everything is about faith. So, <clears throat> what did Abraham's faith look like? Because you can just know something cool, you can go tell someone about it and sound smart, but what does it matter to you unless you can apply it? You've got to take it into your life and walk it out. You can sit there and talk about Abraham's life all you want, but if you don't walk it, it's a waste of time. So what did Abraham's faith look like? Once we know what it looked like, then we can do it too. So, Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Cool, we all know this phrase. Apostle Paul quoted it in Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yes. This is a good thing. So if you believe God too, it will be counted to you as righteousness. But what does this even mean? Why was it counted to him as righteousness? Tell me. <laughs> Let's find out because Apostle Paul explains it very, very clearly. Let's look at this. Romans 14. And in hope, he believed against hope. This is speaking of Abraham. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no belief made him waver concerning the promise of God. See, you're going to see that word everywhere. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, because he was fully convinced that not only did God say it, he was able to fulfill it. He was able to do it. So you can sit there and say, yes, I believe God made that promise, but do you believe he's actually going to fill it out? That means if you believe he's going to make it come to pass, that means your life is going to change. Because you sincerely, truly believe every word of it. We can see another example of this kind of faith. There's a Roman centurion who came up to Yeshua, and he said to him, my servant is sick, I need you to heal him. And Yeshua says, okay, let's go, I'll go heal him. And the centurion has something very, very interesting to say. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Yeshua heard this, he marveled, and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, no, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, it's faith. Those are the ones. The only way you're going to recline at the table with Abraham is if you have crossed that spiritual divide. And you're sitting there with, with him. If you've become a Hebrew, 
And the way you get there is with faith. That is it. That is the all-encompassing everything. You need but faith. That is why it is talked about so much. Here's some examples of faithlessness now that we've seen what faith is. Believing what God has to say and doing it. Believing what God has to say and believing it with every piece of your being. So what is faithlessness? We're going to look at the 40-year journey in the wilderness. Because the first generation of Israel, they were journeying toward the promise. They were journeying toward the same promise that Abraham was journeying toward, the land of Canaan. But they didn't make it. Abraham made it because he had faith, but they didn't make it. Why not? In Hebrews 4.2, For also we have had the gospel preached as well as to them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That's right. So Abraham made it to the promise because he had faith. The first generation coming out of Egypt did not make it because they had no faith. And look at this. They had the gospel preached to them. The same one that was preached in the first century by Yeshua. Yes. The same gospel that was preached to Abraham way back 3,000 some odd years ago. The same gospel. But now, somebody might say, you know, a dispensationalist says, you know, you're in this area, then this area, then this area, then this area. They might say that the writer of Hebrews is just looking back toward them. Too bad faith didn't exist back in the time of Moses. <laughs> no, faith did exist back then. Let's go back to the time of Moses and see what Moses had to say about this event. Forty year journey, Numbers 1433. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Wow. The writer of Hebrews wasn't looking back in hindsight. He was just quoting Moses. That was Moses' interpretation. They all died because they had no faith. That's what Moses said. Faith did exist back then. The gospel existed back then. The promise existed back then. It did not show up and become new in the first century. It became new when God created it. All right. So... Now, what was their faithlessness all about? Hebrews 3.17. With whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with those who had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, which is also his promise, but to those who did not believe? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They failed to reach the promise because of unbelief. What is unbelief? Well, it is the Greek word apistia. That means faithlessness. Yes, we know that. But it also means disobedience. <laughs> so what does faithlessness and disobedience have to do with each other? Well, it's only logic. But we'll discuss that here in a second. Let's look at another example of faithlessness leading to disobedience. Genesis 3.1, the first sin. <laughs> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord, had, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So we all know she wouldn't touch the tree, right? She did more than touch it, she ate it. And so did Adam. So, now they knew that God said, If you even touch this thing, you're going to die. Did she believe God? She had no faith that what God said was true. Because God said, if you even touch it, you'll die. Well, she touched it anyway, which means she had no faith in God, which means she touched it, which is disobedience. 
faithlessness causes disobedience. If your father says, clean your room, and then we'll go to Disneyland, if you believe in you clean your room. If you don't believe he's going to take you to Disneyland, you're not going to clean your room. If you don't believe, you're not going to obey. So, another example of faithlessness, Romans 9.31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over that stumbling stone. So they failed because they did not have faith. They did not pursue it by faith. That's right. But what are they pursuing? Let's go back. Israel pursued the law of faith that lead to righteousness. And it says, had they pursued that law with faith, they would have made it. So they would have pursued a law with would have reached faith in this. What? You would you would if you pursued the law with faith, what does that mean? I think Marcion just rolled over in his grave. Look at him again. Pursue the law by faith. Is that even possible? Alright, but they did it based on works. Alright, let's get let's try to get some clarification on this. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Oh boy. We were looking for clarification. We just kicked up some more dust. <laughs> okay, so what it's saying here essentially is those who do the works of the law are under a curse. But in the next, not even the next sentence, in the same sentence, he says those are cursed who don't do the works of the law. <laughs> so if you do the law, you're cursed, but you're cursed if you don't do the law. Wow. Now, this is why a lot of people out there say that Apostle Paul is not scripture. Because they look at verses like this and they get really confused. <laughs> so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to you what's going on here. Now, obviously, the second one, the book of the law, he's referring to the five books of Moses. It's actually a quote from the five books of Moses. Look at Deuteronomy 27, 26. That's a quote from the Torah. So, the second one is the five books of Moses. But what's that first one right there? The works of the law. Well, there's only two places in antiquity where you will find that phrase. It is in the epistles of Paul. But also in a contemporary of Paul, in the Qumran Caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls. In cave number four, there's a scroll called the MMT Scroll. And on that scroll, it says, Mixat Ma'asei HaTorah. That's why it's called MMT, that's the abbreviation. Now, HaTorah, we all know what that means. The law. Ma'asei means works. So this scroll, sitting there in cave number four, is going to tell us what are the works of the law. Now, I, I actually say this, whoever wants to read it, I'll show it to them. But the translation of, of the works of the law found in cave number four, there's 22 laws in this thing. And out of those 22 laws, only three of them actually reference the five books of Moses. Out of those 22 laws, 19 of them are nonsense. Amen. Let me tell you, one of those laws is a dog shall not be in the streets of Jerusalem. Where is that in the five books of Moses? <laughs> It also says that wheat grown by Gentiles is inherently unclean. Where is that in the five books of Moses? I mean, you read through those laws, it's literally nonsense. So, the works of the law are really man's traditions. Yes. So let's read this again. For all who rely on the works, for all who rely on the traditions of men, yes. are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all written in the book of Moses. And do them. So he's doing a comparison and contrast. You're cursed if you do the traditions of men. 
and you're cursed if you do not do the law of Moses. That is literally what he is saying in there. There's no confusion. You just need to understand where Paul's coming from. He was a scholar. I mean, he understood everything inside and right. out. So he's going to be speaking at a level that you at least right. need to take time to understand. Bless you. Right. <laughs> okay. So now he is go he's, he's going on here a little bit. We, we, we have a format here. Paul was a genius. He thought logically. <clears throat> so we see here he's doing a comparison contrast. The first half of the sentence, he's doing the traditions of, the, of men. Mm -hmm. The second half of the sentence, he's talking about the law of God five books of Moses. So now he's going to keep up this pattern as he keeps speaking. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The first half of the sentence is the traditions of men. Yes. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the traditions of men. The righteous shall live by faith. Logically speaking, the second half of his argument is the five books of Moses. Yes. The five books of Moses is faith. And if you live by those, you are living in faith. Hallelujah. He goes on. <laughs> but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Remember, comparison contrast. The first one's the traditions of men. But the tradition of men is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Which, look, Leviticus 18.5. He's talking about the five books of Moses. Now it's interesting, Apostle Paul being well studied as he is, what he was doing, he was not creating anything new. He was just copying something he had already read in the Torah. So let's take a look at it. We're going to go to Leviticus 18.5, where he is talking about this and see what it has to say. Leviticus 18.3. We're going back one step. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Now that word do as they do is the Hebrew word H4639. It is ma'ase. Now look back here. Works of the law. Ma'ase. Same word. So, Paul's just talking about the same thing the Torah's talking about. You shall not do the works they do in Egypt where you live. You shall not do the works in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You should not do the traditions of their laws. You should not do the works of their laws. Hallelujah. Wow. So now, this is the part Apostle Paul quoted. Again, comparison contrast. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. The same argument Apostle Paul's using. And Apostle Paul called it faith. This is his argument here. The first one is not faith. The second one is faith. But the, the traditions of man is not faith. But the one who does them shall live by them. That is faith. Hallelujah. Apostle Paul is calling the five books of Moses faith. faith. Yes. Wow. I mean, seriously. Marcion must be doing cartwheels. <laughs> All right. But is this just something I'm just making up? Am I just making a clever argument to try to pull the wool over some of guys? Am I just really confused myself? Well, let's go back and see what the law has to say about this. Because remember, that's the foundation of everything. Yeshua was prophesied about in the Torah. I mean, everywhere. That is the foundation. If you want to know what anybody's talking about now, you got to see what they were talking about then. All right, let's look in the Torah. Leviticus, let's go even further back. Leviticus 
if anyone commits a breach of faith, faith, and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. So, what is a sin? The transgression of the law. We see this in 1 John 3, 4. A sin is the transgression of the law. And the way you transgress the law, according to the Torah itself, is by breaching faith. Wow. Transgressing the law is breaching faith. Let's go, let's go again. Leviticus 6, 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor... Okay, if anyone transgresses the law, that's what sin means. If anyone transgresses the law and commits a breach of faith against who? Against the Lord. So, sinning is breaking faith with God. Breaking faith with God is sinning. Transgressing the law is a sin. All the same. One more time, because I'm not done. Numbers 5, 6. Speak to the people of Israel when a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. And that person realizes his guilt. The way you sin is by breaking faith with the Lord. This is the law of faith. You can't deny it. All you have to do is look back. The only way you can believe that the law is not faith is if you abolish the law. You never even want to look at it. Then you can reinterpret things however you want. Okay, Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, it says if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all these commandments. Now, here's going to be something familiar. I'm going to show you in just a second. Did Abraham, the man of faith, keep the law? Because his life is the definition of faith. Right. We're following his faith. So if the law of God is faith, that means Abraham, the man of faith, would have kept the law. Let's read it. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promise, remember? And he even mentions all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is not only the promise, this is the blessing part where we are involved. The Gentiles, when they're brought in and become part of the faith of Abraham, when they become his offspring, this is that promise. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws... That word right there is Torot. Laws. Torah. Okay, so let's look at this. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and careful to do all his commandments. Sounds like it's written by the same person, doesn't it? Because it was. Okay. So how do works and faith connect? How does faith lead to obedience? We're going to go to a New Testament example because I think he puts it together really well. Go to James 2, 19 through 26. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That means you just can't say, I believe, because demons do it too. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Because the demons have it too. <laughs> Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He was not doing the works of law. He was not doing the traditions of men. He was not transgress, like Yeshua said, how you transgress the commandments of God by doing the traditions of men. Amen. Abraham did not Amen. do the traditions of men. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is also dead. So you could have a whole lot of faith. But if you just sit in your house and play video games and commit in all your lawlessness that you did before, well, your faith is dead. So, now that we know that Abraham had faith and he did works, and scripture tells us to walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. So, do we imitate Abraham's faith or his works? What does scripture tell us? We're just not going to decide on our own. We're going to let the word of God tell us. Hebrews 6.12 So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. But when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he could swear, he swore by himself. So it's saying here, imitate the faith of Abraham. So good. We understand that. Paul said the same thing. You should walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. What did the Messiah say? John 8.39 And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Yeshua said to them, If you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Huh. Okay, so what do you do? The faith or his works? Well, maybe we imitate the faith of Abraham by doing the works Abraham did. It's that simple. We are supposed to imitate the faith of Abraham. How? Doing the works By doing the works Abraham did. Okay. So far, the walk of Abraham has shown us a Hebrew is someone who has crossed over and left their old nature behind, essentially born again. Now we're all familiar with this. The promises of God were given to Abraham and to his offspring. We become offspring of Abraham when we walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. And all of this comes with its own trials. It's not easy. If you keep the word of God as it was written, as he meant it to be, everyone's going to hate you. Mm -hmm. That's right. The Jews are going to hate you. The Christians are going to hate you. The Muslims are going to hate you. The atheists are going to hate you. Your mom and dad's going to hate you. I mean, everyone. Everyone's going to hate you. Yeshua says this. Don't be surprised when they persecute you. Because many will persecute you thinking they're doing God's will. Boy, oh boy. So, I had someone say once, you know, because we were looking at, you know, some persecution of the Jews, and an atheist told me one time, like, wow, the Jews must be doing something right. And I was like, how so? He's like, because everybody hates them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 okay. So, Messiah and Abraham. Why is this? A we need the Messiah because he is the seed of Abraham. 
And without him, there is no promise. Sorry. So, Messiah and Abraham. John 8.56 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Yeshua answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, the Messiah was there with Abraham. That's right. So now we have a real question. Actually, before we get to that, let's see a few examples of where he was in there. According to the shadows of the Messiah, these are a couple of the uh, titles that we find of the Messiah in this portion. The son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of Jerusalem, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the sword and the torch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, you think this is a lot, right? Not. It goes on. A long ways. He's all over in there. Everywhere you turn, he's in there. And unless we want to sit here for, you know, until about midnight on the same teaching, we're going to have to just stick with one example. So, now that we know that the Messiah was there with Abraham, did he do anything? Or did he just sit back and watch? I had someone, I heard someone say once that Santa Claus was there at the nativity scene when Jesus was there. What? So, I was like, so was, was Jesus just sitting there? Or was he participating? Was, when he was watching this journey in Abraham, was he part of it? Well, let's find out. Did you know that Messiah made covenant with Abraham? How many people know that? The Messiah, Yeshua, the same ones that we made a covenant with when we said yes to him, is the same Messiah, Yeshua, that made covenant with Abraham. So let's take a look at that. Genesis 15, 17. So, Let's lead up to this. <clears throat> the way you make a covenant, especially back then, is you guys decide you're going to make a deal. So you get the animals prepared as a sacrifice, and you put them on either side. And then the both of you walk between them to seal the deal. You know, we kind of see evidence of this today. You know, still like, you know, blood brothers both like cut their thumb and touch you, whatever, spit in their hands and shake hands. You know, but it started like this. A lot less germy. <laughs> so, this is what's going on here. Abraham put the covenant pieces on either side. And then Abraham fell asleep. And then God himself walked through the pieces. Guaranteed that he was the one who was going to make it happen. God himself was going to be the one that made his promise come to pass. He wasn't going to be reliant on Abraham or his offspring. But who walked through those pieces? And it happened, the sun went down, and it was dark, and behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. In the same day, Hashem made a covenant with Abram, saying, I have given this land to your seed, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this is the sealing of the deal. This is where Abraham and us get involved into the covenant. So who was it that walked through those covenant pieces and made the covenant. Well, let's look at that burning lamp. It is the Hebrew word lapid. It can mean a lamp or a flame. It means to shine, to mean lightning, a lamp or a torch. So, to get some ideas on really what is this lamp that walks through those covenant pieces and made covenant with Abraham, let's see what that lamp is. Let's go to Psalms 132.17. And there will be a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Okay, now that doesn't really mean much. But who here knows the Hebrew word for anointed? 
Mashiach, which is English for Messiah. So right here, I have prepared a lamp for my Messiah. But it gets better than this. Isaiah 62.1 For Zion's sake, I will not be silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until its righteousness goes out as brightness and her salvation as a burning lamp. Oh boy, who here knows the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. 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 Right, and that's the word. I looked it up. <laughs> so, let's read this again. Until its righteousness goes out as brightness and her Yeshua as a burning lamp. So we see here, the lamp is the Messiah and the lamp is Yeshua. By the very word, we're not assuming. Okay, so let's go back. Okay, now this burning lamp. And it happened, the sun went down, and it was dark, and behold, a smoking furnace, and Messiah Yeshua passed through those pieces. Hallelujah. Wow. According to Scripture, if you just take that word and see what it means. The Messiah himself, Messiah Yeshua, is the one who made covenant with Abraham. But is that all? <coughs> what about Moses? Because he came along a little bit later, about 430 years. Did Messiah make covenant with him too? Because Messiah, because Moses was just kind of like an extension or building up on that just a little bit later. Because they were really being brought into the covenant of Abraham is really what it was. So if the Abraham covenant was with Messiah and Moses and the children of Israel were brought into that covenant, don't you think the Messiah would be there as well? Exodus 20.18 and now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet <coughs> and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar off. This is when the covenant was being given, right? And everybody's like, oh! So, the covenant's being given. All this is going on. Remember Lapid in the last one? The burning torch, the lamp? The flashes of lightning? That's the interpretation of that. Now when all the people saw the thunder... This is the same word, Lapid, and the Messiah, Yeshua, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and traveled and stood afar. So it says here, Messiah, Yeshua was on the mountain. But am I just kind of going crazy? Was Messiah really there? Let's see what Apostle Paul had to say. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock was Messiah. Wow. He was there just as much with Moses as he was with Abraham. Yes. Same covenant. They were all brought into the covenant with Abraham. When you start reading the covenants in the Torah when Moses was involved, they are identical. They even talk about Moses. He even says, I'm bringing you into the land that I swore to Abraham. Yes. I mean, he says it. There, there's no shady talking in there and trying to understand. I mean, it's right there on the surface. So... <clears throat> What does this mean for us? Galatians 3, 15, 20. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one, and to your offspring who is, you know, Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's saying right here, God made a promise with Abraham. And then when he made a promise and made covenant with Moses, it did not erase the covenant with Abraham. That's right. Okay, 
So if Moses' covenant did not erase Abraham's covenant, let's move over here. Did Messiah's covenant with the Gentiles erase Moses' covenant? No. You can't say yes, because if you say yes, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> okay, so it goes on. Galatians 3.15-2, or 3.15-20. Galatians 3.18, this is an extension from what we read before. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Because the promise comes through Abraham. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so something interesting here. Who here knows that the angel of God is another title for the Messiah? Yes. Right. So, he's saying right here, the angel of God is the one who gave the law on the mountain. So if the angel of God is the one who gave the mountain, and the angel of God is also the Messiah, the Messiah gave the law on the mountain. Look, it's better again. Now, an intermediary, an inti, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Yeshua said God and I are one. Yes, Yeshua sir. himself said he is that. So, Apostle Paul said twice, in almost the same sentence, that Messiah gave the law on the mountain. And a covenant is not annulled by a new covenant. Sorry, let's, let, let's, let's, let's stop and think about this for a second. If a new covenant could void out an old covenant, boy, are we in trouble. Because Messiah made a covenant with us to bring us into the promise. But what if he decides he doesn't like that anymore and he makes a new covenant with someone else? Oh, boy, we're gone. But God is faithful, right? Yes. That means when he says something, he's going to do it. Remember, Abraham's faith was counted righteousness because he was fully convinced that what God said he was going to do, he was going to do. That means when he makes a covenant, that means it stays for eternity. Yes. Till the end of time. Well, the end of time stops first. He goes on forever. And that's where we are going to go with him. And we need to have faith that is true. Otherwise, we're just going to... Uh, Walk off into nowhere. Now, how many people? The Torah. God says, if you keep my commandments, you know you'll be fruitful, you'll live long, you know all these blessings. God says, if you keep my commandments. How many people today do not believe that? And because they don't believe it, they don't do it. Because they don't believe that God says, if you do my commandments, you will live. They don't believe it. They don't do it. It's that simple. People today don't believe what God said. God said, all this stuff is for you. All this stuff will give you life. If you do my laws, it will give you life. Hallelujah. Today, people don't believe it. So they don't do it. So in conclusion of all this, in Hebrews, I love the writer of Hebrews, but chapter 11 talks a lot about faith. And I think this kind of wraps it all up perfectly. Hebrews 11, 1 through 10. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, the Messiah. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, 
Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice everybody is rewarded for their faith. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, same as us. We don't know where we're going. We can't see five seconds ahead of us. That's why we need to hold on to God. His, his law, his commandment, his Messiah is the lamp to our feet. Yes. Oh, we can go a thousand miles if we only see two feet in front of us because then we don't trip on nothing. <laughs> By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hallelujah. Remember those blinders at the beginning of the guy, Joel, walking through the desert? That's Abraham. That needs to be us. Don't look at the world behind you. Don't look at the world around you. Don't look at any of it. Look at the world to come. And if you just focus on the goal, focus on the path where you're going, then you will become a Hebrew. You will cross that spiritual divide. You will cross over to the side that the Messiah is on. And in, in the world to come, you will sit at the table at the banquet feast, the marriage feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. And that is the end of today's tour portion.
both are being identified as Jacob and Israel, which is really interesting. So what's the difference between these two? Well, the first group, one group of his servants, has apparently grown weary, waiting for Hashem's promise to be fulfilled, and has actually begun to fashion for themselves a new faith that Hashem himself does not recognize. In essence, they've fallen into idolatry. <coughs> Why? Or rather, how? As we see in Isaiah, they are still calling upon the name of Hashem, but instead of having the endurance to face the trials and the possible tribulations of this walk, they instead sought to comfort themselves by altering the character of Hashem, questioning his righteousness, and ultimately pardoning themselves of breaking covenant with his stamp of approval, of course. That's always the signature move, isn't it? So, this is being contrasted with the second group of people that follows at the end. This group is also struggling. However, they're struggling against the first group, struggling to avoid being swallowed up by these defectors from the faith, and are being deeply troubled as they're trying to cling on to the faith that Hashem had given to them through Abraham. As we've learned today, Abraham was called out and was commanded to leave the idols and the false interpretations that the people of that time had created about Hashem. And back in his time, Hashem was a well-known God, just as he is today. And just like he is today, people were still calling upon his name, and they were calling their worship pure to him. They just did it in a different way. Abraham, like us, was called out into a wilderness. He was called out from a type of a Babylon or an Egypt to a place that was filled with thieves, as we learned, filled with unrighteousness, idolatry, and a whole bunch of evil in order to endure trials and testing that would ultimately prove his faith. We should be encouraged in this because that we see that through Abraham's trials and testing, his faith and his trust was strengthened in Hashem because Hashem was always there to pull him out. And because he did not give up and say that the faith or the commandments of God were too hard for him to perform or to fulfill, Abraham's children then were able to inherit the promise that Hashem fulfilled in their lifetime, as we read earlier today also concerning the Exodus. Right here in Exodus 15, I'm going to quote that, where the children are giving praise to Yehovah. And it says, Yehovah is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will glorify him. My father's God, I will exalt him. When they say my father's God, they're referring back to Abraham. Now, we also need to remember in this walk that the trials that we endure are for our own good. They're like a mirror that Hashem puts in front of our faces so that we can see our weakness, so that we can see the places where we're not you know, lining up perfectly with His will and what He wants from us. And it gives us the opportunity to repent and to change those things. Mm -hmm. So going through the trials is actually a really big blessing. Mm -hmm. If we were never given the trial or we were never chastised and disciplined as children, we'd be really unruly. Mm -hmm. Just like we see, you know, in modern TV, right? We see a lot of that where the parents are seen as <coughs> idiots, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And the children are just oh so wise. That's not true. Hashem is oh so wise, and we're the ones who need to measure up to his standards, not the other way around. So, the Lord, as we know, and we've heard through scripture, he tests our hearts. He tries our reins, our emotions, to see if we will obey his commandments or not. 
We need to not grow weary when things are not going the way that we expect, nor do we need to try to make an excuse to fix something or to do something unrighteous as a fix to our life situation. When we think that God is not looking or he's not there, we need to remember that the teacher's silent during the testing. He's going to be quiet. He's going to wait and see what we're going to do. Are we going to remember the word that was given to Abraham? Are we going to remember our faith? Or are we going to abandon it and do what we feel is right? And that's going to ultimately reveal what's in our hearts. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in times of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of trial and hardship. Does anybody know where this quote's from? It's actually a famous quote by Martin Luther King Jr., and it echoes God's desire to have a people who are dedicated to him, even today in modern times. Are we really prepared to be soldiers for Hashem's kingdom and to fight for this promise that he's giving us if we're afraid to take a spiritual bullet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is, are we prepared to have comforts removed? Are we prepared to have our mindsets and our beliefs challenged? Yes. If we're not, well better watch out, we might be lining up with this first group of people. Mm-hmm. That is, they weren't ready for their own tribulation, and they weren't prepared to lean on Hashem. Mm-hmm. We need to remember that our strength comes from God. Mm-hmm. And like Abraham, he didn't know what he was going to have to endure. There was no way of knowing that he was even going to make it through that wilderness other than having his trust in Hashem. So, if he was told up front, do you think he would have left her <laughs> he was a very wealthy man. He, it, you make a lot of money selling idols. Mm-hmm. Look at you know the false teachers out there today. Mm-hmm. You know, would you have left a life of that much luxury to go live in a tent? Not many people would. Abraham probably would have told God, "I'll take a rain check and I'll get back to you later." <laughs> but just like us, God isn't going to tell us what we're going to go through. We just have to trust Him that He's going to carry us through. In Psalms 18.2, Yehovah is my strength and my fortress and my deliverer. He is my God and my rock. I will trust in him. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. That's Yeshua. He is my high tower. Now, before we continue, I want to point out a little bit of something on the side that I noticed. That the way that Hashem is addressing this group of people really lines up with the prophecies and what was spoken to the churches in Revelation you'll notice the same pattern of speech. Um, And you'll see the distinction between the two groups continuing on and see what I'm talking about here in Isaiah 40, 27. We're going to look at four words. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? All right, so the four words we're going to look at are my way, hidden, right, and disregarded. The first word, we learned about this actually a couple Torah portions ago. It's H1870, and that's direct. It literally means a road. It can also mean the course of life or a custom, like the halaha. Um, The second word that we're going to look at for hidden is sathar, and it literally means to hide something, to cover. You know, like Yeshua's parable where he said, do you take a lamp and hide it under a basket? That's along those same lines as safar. And the third word is right. That word is H4641, we should be very familiar with this word. That one is mishpat, which means judgment or verdict. 
Now, the last word, disregarded, it has a lot of different meanings, and so depending on what you know, scripture you have in front of you, it's going to be translated a little bit differently. Um, one scripture I saw translated as Passover. Alejandro read crossed over. Um, but that word is H5674, and it's a bar. It does mean crossover. It does mean passed over. But did you also know it means to cover over or to alter, to escape, to make go away, to meddle, or to make a partition, that is to divide and separate? I think that's really powerful. Because when you take all these words and you put them together, what the people are really saying to Hashem is kind of frightening. <laughs> um, in plain English, let's read Isaiah 40, 27. The people are saying, my life is covered or hidden, protected, if you will, and my judgment is done away with by my God. If this was true, why would God be asking his people, why are you telling me this? That should make us think for a little minute. Is it possible that these people have the same heart as we find in Isaiah chapter 5 and throughout the chapters of Malachi? If you haven't read Isaiah chapter 5 in a while, I recommend you write that down. Read chapter 5 in Isaiah. Read this half Torah again, and then compare that to the parable in Matthew talking about the vineyard. It's a very powerful, powerful message. So, what does it say in Malachi 2? We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to quote a verse. This is going to summarize all of what Malachi has been trying to convey. And he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? When you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he has delight in them, or where is the God of judgment? Now that's a big one, that last one. How often do we enter into the trials of this walk and ask ourselves, where is God? Where is my help? I am obeying the commandments, yet all these calamities are coming upon me. Why isn't he here to help me? You fill in the blank, right? We need to remember that through our trials, even though God's silent, he gave us each other. We're here for a purpose. We're here for a church. We're here to learn, but we're also here to correct and to give each other encouragement. Mm -hmm. So when one of us is teetering and tottering and you know, a little weak in the faith, we as a group are responsible for helping to keep that person on track and remind them why they're here. Help encourage their faith. Some common uh, signatures of someone who's weak in their faith is when their heart becomes grieved, they start to question, is this faith worth it? They start to have doubts. And as we learned through the Torah portion, that faithlessness ultimately leads to sin and re or rebellion when we declare that instead of keeping the Torah and the commandments, that the judgmental God of the Old Testament has been done away with, we're under grace, so we can go commit whatever sin we want because it's for the greater good. No, God doesn't really look at it that way, does he? If that mindset was true, in the time of the prophets, that's what they were preaching, then why did Israel go into captivity for disobeying the written word of God then? That's a good question, isn't it? Or why were they called idolaters for adopting other customs or religious aspects of these customs that made Israel's allies, their friends, feel a little bit more comfortable with them? It kind of makes you even wonder if Hashem's really serious about what was said in Romans 11. We read this every day, well, not every day, but we live it every Shabbat, right? 
So we read this every Shabbat, so she'll be familiar with it, but I'm going to read it anyways because it applies. Romans 11, 17 to 22 says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, meaning you were out of covenant, were grafted in among them, who? The covenant, the covenant people. Became a sharer of the root, who is Yeshua, and the fatness of the olive tree with them, the promise, do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, it is not you who bears up the root, but the root that bears you. You will then say that the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in well. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be high-minded, but fear. For if God did not spare these natural branches, fear, lest he lest may also not spare you either. But behold, the kindness and the severity of God on those having fallen, severity. But on you, who are what? Standing in faith. You will receive the kindness. If you continue in the kindness, which is the obedience, otherwise you will also be cut off. Just a side note, a little bunny trail. Uh, Romans was written after Jesus died. And according to what we read here in Paul, who is one of the greater apostles, we can see that the other apostles behind him weren't free loving it up. They weren't relying on Jesus' death, blood, and resurrection or grace to go run around and do whatever they wanted. They were very focused on walking in the way that he had commanded them to do. Another common thing we hear is, but God's merciful. He wouldn't punish covenant people for walking out of faith or you know, doing what they feel is right. You know, not following the teachings and instructions wholeheartedly, right? Well, this particular mindset of the world is dangerous, and it does cause people who are weak in the faith to fall away. And in essence, you're actually questioning the righteousness of Hashem. Again, remember, His ways are higher than our ways, not the other way around. Falling away from the faith that Abraham kept, or altering it to make exceptions to commit you know, tiny sins here and there, results in the fashioning of a new faith. And by extension, it changes God's character, forming a new God. As Hashem reminds this first group of believers who decide to shake off the covenant, continuing with Isaiah 40, verse 28. He reminds them, saying, Have you not known? Why do you have to ask that if they knew him? Have you not heard? If they were listening, they wouldn't have to be reminded. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, nor does he grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no strength, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall, exhausted. But those who are doing what? Waiting on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall be the ones to mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall be the ones who will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, and let the peoples renew their strength, and let them approach. Let them speak, and let us together draw near for judgment. For who stirred up the one from the east, to whom victory meets at every step? He gives up the nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, and the driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not known. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid, and the ends of the earth they tremble and have drawn near and have come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. And the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, who smooths with the hammer and who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be removed. 
And this is going to be followed up with Psalms 52.7 saying, Behold, the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, he was strong in wickedness. So as we can see, fashioning a new aspect of Hashem's character and giving it his stamp of approval is ultimately character assassination. Making a claim to the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of Israel, but failing to fulfill the oath, which was our promise to follow faithfully by not mingling the faith with other religious customs, for an example, that is perjury. Both are blasphemous and grievous crimes against Hashem himself, and both are punishable by being cut off from the tree of life. But to those who are keeping the covenant, who are striving to change their lives, who are coming before him as Abraham did, who are seeking to throw out the forged false idols and the false representations of Hashem, those who are willing to be made into a clean slate, Hashem makes this promise in contrast with no gray areas. He doesn't have a maybe involved. There's no clause. The distinction between these two groups of people is just profound. And you can see who serves Hashem wholeheartedly with the endurance and who does not. And it's so well defined between these two verses, you could slice it with a knife. In Isaiah 41.8, it starts out with a promise saying, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, who is my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying, You, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are increased against you, they shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. For I, the Lord, your God, will help you. I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you warm Jacob, you men of Israel, for I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, which is new and sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and a wind shall carry them away, and the tempest will scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Having endurance will gain us the promise. Having strength and not fearing, not growing weary, will also cause us to inherit this promise. So let us not grow weary waiting for God's promises, and let us renew ourselves with the love that we had when the word first came to us. Let ourselves be comforted through these hardships in our lives, and know that our strength and our faith ultimately comes from Hashem himself, as it says in Psalms 28.7, and we'll finish with this. Yehovah is my strength and my shield. In my heart, I trust in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with song, I will sing him praise. We've heard quite a bit about Abraham, uh, the father of our faith. If you think about it from the last, the previous two Torah portions, Abraham was the first one to keep the covenants and the statutes and the commandments of God. Nobody else, even Noah, Though Noah was considered a righteous man, kept them. But word says that Noah became a man of the earth. He fell away 
and became very fleshly again. Our scripture today starts off, O senseless Galatians, who has put you under a spell not to obey the truth? Before whose eyes Yeshua Messiah was clearly portrayed among you as impaled. This only I wish to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of Torah or by the hearing of belief? Do we receive that Torah? Excuse me, do we receive that Holy Spirit that is given to us because we are obedient to Torah? Or do we do it? Does He give it because of our belief? He says, Are you so senseless? Having begun in the Spirit, do you now end in the flesh? Isn't that what Noah did? Have you suffered so much in vain, if indeed in vain? Is he then who is supplying the Spirit to you and working miracles among you, doing it by works of Torah or by the hearing of belief? Even so, Abraham did believe Elohim, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. It was only because of the belief that Abraham had that what God said God was going to do. He wasn't in Torah when he believed in God. He first believed and then was obedient. Genesis 12.3 says, And I shall bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. In reading that today, I was wondering, what is that word clans? And it's a word in the Hebrew that means families. Multiple families. That word is mishpachot. It is faith family. It is commandment family. If the right rulings, the judgments are mishpat, and a mishpacha is a group of people who are obedient to his word, considered a family, then he's saying that those who believe in the word and are obedient to, to it will be the ones that are blessed. But interestingly enough, it also goes on to say, of the earth shall be blessed. But that isn't the word ha-aretz that is the earth. It is the word ha-adama, which is land or dirt. So those that he's going to bless are the mishpakot of the land. So he speaks of those who have crossed over into the land to be a part of the nation of Israel, the people who he loves. Genesis 18, 18 says, Since Abraham is certainly going to become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I'm going to talk about that in him in just a minute. Genesis 17, 1-9 says, It came to be when Abraham was 99 years old that Hashem appeared to Abram. And said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be perfect. And I give my covenant between me and you and shall greatly increase you. 
And Abram fell on his face, and Elohim spoke with him, saying, As for me, look, my covenant is with you, and you shall become a father of many nations. And no longer is your name called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, because I shall make you a father of many nations. We spoke about that this week in youth group. His name, Avram, the father that is greatly exalted, Av and Ram. Avraham is the father of many who are exalted. I shall establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be Elohim to you and your seed after you. And I shall give to you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Kenan, as an everlasting possession, and I shall be their Elohim. And Elohim said to Abram, As for you, guard my covenant, you and your seed after you, throughout their generations. So he says in there, I shall establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be Elohim to you and to your seed after you, to be the God to you and your seed after you. I shall give to you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings. He says here, in you, and in 12.3, he says, in you, and that in you, think about this. Hebrews 10.5 says, therefore coming into the world, he says, and he quotes from the Psalms, slaughtering and meal offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That body was prepared within Abraham long before it was needed. But it was going to be needed. And without it being within Abraham, as we learned today, there would be no promise. But there's something that is being required of Abraham. It is not simply, I'm going to give my covenant to you and you can go about doing whatever you want to do. He says in Genesis 17, 9, as for you, guard my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout your generations. Proverbs 7.2 says, guard my commands and live. And my Torah is the apple of your eye. Oh, yeah. He wants his Torah to be the most important thing to us. Yes. You know what the apple of the eye is? It's the pupil. It is that which, through which we see everything. Right? And he wants us to view everything through Torah. John 14, 23, Yeshua answered them, If anyone loves me, he shall guard my word. And my Father shall love him, and we shall come to him and make our stay with him. It's not our temporary stay. He says we'll stay. But it is conditional. God will obey the word. 1 John 5, 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of Elohim when we love Elohim and guard his commands. For this is the love for Elohim that we guard his commands. And his commands are not heavy. Yes. Romans 4, 16 through 17. Paul writes, Even as David also says of the blessedness of the man to whom Elohim reckons righteousness without works. Now remember, Abraham was considered righteous without any works. Works of 
the laws of man or even the works of Torah because he believed in God. Blessed are those whose lawlessnesses are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Hashem shall by no means reckon sin. He continues and he writes, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised only? Or also upon the uncircumcised? For we affirm belief was reckoned unto Abraham for righteousness. Wasn't Abraham uncircumcised at the time that he believed? Didn't he believe for a long time before covenant of circumcision? Wasn't he 99 years old when he received the sign of the covenant? That word circumcised or circumcision in the Greek is the word peritome. It is defined as the act or right of circumcision, but it's also defined as they of the circumcision, which is a term used of the Jews. It is the state of circumcision. I don't necessarily agree with this. It says of the Christians gathered from among the Jews. But metaphorically, it is of Christians or people separated from the unclean multitude and truly consecrated to God. Jews. I use that term Christians very loosely here. It is those who believe in Messiah. They are his. They're circumcised in the heart, in the spiritual manner, metaphorically. Because, and this is the one I love, it says, it is the extinction of passions and the removal of spiritual impurity. What is within you? Do you have passions of the lust within you? Or are you spiritually clean? Have you had those impurities removed? Romans chapter 4 continues in verse 10. How then was it reckoned, being in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And yet, his heart was circumcised. Because he believes, they have faith that God's promise, God would keep. He received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the belief while in uncircumcision, for him to be a father of all those believing through uncircumcision, for righteousness to be reckoned to them also. That is, so that the Gentiles can be grafted in to the covenants of Mashiach. And the father of, of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the belief which our father Abraham had in uncircumcision. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the Torah, but through a righteousness of belief. For if those who are of the Torah are heirs, belief has been made useless. So it's not Torah that brings the promise of the heir but it's the belief that God will be faithful and believing in his word. Belief has made, been made useless and the promise has been nullified. For the Torah works out wrath. For where there is no Torah, there is no transgression. On account of this, it is a belief that it be according to favor for the promise to be made certain to all the seed, not only to those who are of the Torah, but also to those who are of the belief of Abraham is father of us all because he's the father of belief Romans chapter 10 
beginning in verse 10, it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. <laughs> when our heart has been circumcised by Hashem, we believe to righteousness. Each and every one of us has been called to the righteousness that is found within Torah. Blessed be his name, because there are so many out there who believe they're walking in righteousness, yet have no law by which to walk. So what righteousness are they walking in? Because the scripture says, whoever, excuse me, back, let me back up a little bit. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. Because the scripture says, whoever puts his trust in him, being Yeshua, shall not be put to shame. That confession is recognizing our heart, it, it reveals our heart that we believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and that he was crucified and was risen from the dead and that he takes away the sins of those who believe in him but also that we believe in his Torah. <clears throat> because there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same master of all is rich to all those calling upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of Hashem shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And this is really important for us. Because we live in a world where most people that we come in contact with will have heard of Jesus. But have they understood the truth of who he is and what he came here for? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they going to believe in the righteousness of him if they've not understood the righteousness of him? And how shall they hear without one proclaiming? So if we're keeping silent around those that we come into contact with in the world, how will they ever know that either they understand what they understand is wrong or that they have no understanding at all? How could they ever possibly come to the truth if we're not proclaiming it? How shall they hear without one proclaiming? And how shall, they pro how shall they proclaim if they are not sent? Oh, sent. We're going to be having a Torah portion on being sent. Very soon. It has been, as it has been written, how pleasant are the feet of those who bring the good news of peace and who bring the good news to the good. However, not all obeyed the good news, and we're going to experience that. Most will not obey the good news. For Yeshiahu, who uh, says, Hashem, who, who has believed our report? So then belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Elohim. Which is why we need to have the word of Elohim hidden here and here. Or carried with us. Here's my phone. Right? Because we can quote all day long, but when someone sees the word and reads it for themselves, much better. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of works of Torah are under the curse, for it has been written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all that has been written in the book of the Torah to do them. And as we heard from Athens today, he's not talking about the righteousness of Torah. He's talking about traditions of man. Besides the fact that we're still not going to be saved without belief. 
And yet, in reading this this week, in trying to have understanding the, the Lord gave to me, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, he starts, And when the son of Adam, the son of man, comes into his esteem, and comes in his esteem, and all the set-apart messengers with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his esteem, and all the nations shall be gathered before him, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. When the sovereign shall say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer him, saying, Master, when did we see you hungry, and when did we feed you? Or thirsty, and gave to you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and took you in, or naked, and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and we came to you? Pretty humble questions. Because he answers to them. He says, the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, insofar as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. It goes on, and I'm going to read it here in just a moment. But first I want to focus on that word brothers. It is the Greek word adelphos. In the Hebrew, and I didn't do a lot of research on the Hebrew because it really, it's, one didn't edify the other much more than, than I needed it. It's the word ach. But Adelphos is defined as a brother. Whether born of the same two parents or only of the same father or mother. But also as having the same national ancestor, belonging to the same people or countrymen. So if we were all born of Abraham, then we would all be brothers. If we were all born of Israel, all born of Yehuda, we would all be brothers. Having any, uh, excuse me, any fellow or man, I fully agree with that one. But a fellow believer united to another by the bond of affection? Absolutely. An associate in employment or office? I don't call the people I work with brothers. However, brethren in Messiah. And it goes on. It goes a little bit deeper than that. His brothers by blood, Jude. All men who are in Christ, yes. The apostles. And then those as those who are exalted to the same heavenly place. We are brothers. So he is speaking here about those who are within covenant. I don't necessarily believe that all believers are in covenant. So I don't necessarily call all believers my brother. But he's saying here, if you come to visit my brothers, those who are in covenant, then you've done it for me. If you come to visit those in prison who believe in me and are in my covenant, You've come to visit me. If you visited me when I was sick, or if you fed me on the street because I was a believer and I was in covenant. I bring chips. I bring, I often bring things that 
are good for fellow believers, my brothers and my sisters, my mishpacha. He's definitely not talking about those outside of covenant. Scripture goes on to say, he shall, he shall then also say to those on the left, go away from me, accursed ones, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his messengers. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So many people have believed and taken this to understand that if I don't go help the homeless, then I'm going to go to hell. That's not what he's saying. Then they also shall answer him, saying, Master, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not serve you? And he shall answer them in saying, Truly I say to you, insofar as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Belief. We must follow the example that Abraham set for us. We must follow the example that Moses set for us and that Yeshua set for us. Because that's the only way in. But it's also by Torah, by observing his commandments, because it says that Abraham obeyed my voice. Let's be obedient, little children, humble, recognizing that he's the only way. <coughs> 